Hello, and welcome to Children's Friendships Matter, a podcast about children's friendships post-COVID-19. In this first of two episodes, Dr Karen Carter talks to Professor Chris Pascal, OBE, and Professor Tony Bertram, directors of the Centre for Research in Early Childhood, or CREC, based at the St Thomas Children's Centre in Birmingham. In this episode, Karen talks to Tony and Chris about the importance of children's friendships in early childhood education and links to children's well-being. This episode covers a range of topics including flourishment and joy, encouraging children to connect respectfully with others, COVID-19 and friendships, recovery and re-entry into settings and schools post-COVID-19. The second episode will look at the role of adults in children's friendships, time in friendship, and hope and optimism. So welcome, Tony and Chris, to this podcast. It's really great to be able to talk to you this morning. I wondered if I could ask you to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your background. Um, If we could start with you first, Chris. Hello, everyone, and, and to you, Karen. I'm really happy to, to be part of this uh, wonderful conversation this morning. My name is Chris Pascal, and I'm director of the Centre for Research in Early Childhood in Birmingham, which I uh, co-direct with Tony Bertram. I began my professional career as a social care worker with young children in inner city Birmingham, looking after children under the age of five who'd been taken into care but were in a children's home. I don't think we do this anymore. And it was a kind of assessment centre for children. And then I went on and got inspired by the value of education as a means for social mobility and life transformation. So I I did um, a teacher training and then became an early years teacher in in inner city Birmingham, where I, I worked doing that for 15 years doing my master's and doctorate at the same time as teaching full time and then went into HE to train teachers and started at that time to research my own practice in the classroom. And that's where my research career started, inspired also by my my doctorate. And then I met Tony and who was also at Worcester and we established the Centre for Research in Early Childhood, which we relocated into a children's centre in inner city Birmingham in the year 2000 as we turned a new century. And here we are doing research practice and consultancy and training, living our daily life in a children's centre in inner city Birmingham with children and families. So we walk in the front door with the children every day and it keeps us very grounded, I like to believe. That's so interesting. Thank you. I think it's really great for listeners to just they're always so interested in people's backgrounds and, and how they've come to where they're at. So could I ask you the same, Tony? Yeah, well, I, I was born in Holton in Lancashire, uh, and I grew up in Blackpool, a little fishing town on the coast there. We were market traders. I'm not talking stocks and shares. I'm talking about making women's hats. And I spent the first infant years in a drawer in a market stall, a hat, big hat drawer. That was my beginnings. I emigrated to Canada when I was maybe in my early 20s, got married out there, and then decided that I I should do something serious and came back and trained as a teacher, became, I I worked in infant schools. I've always worked with children under five 
for about 13 years, became a head and then uh, moved into higher education. As Chris said, we started the Centre for Research in Early Childhood uh, when we were at Worcester and since then we've become independent. Our focus of much of our research is on the implications of research for practice and policy. In other words, we don't just want to do research for research's sake, but we want to see it have an impact. It's a very ethical and values-driven organisation with a serious mission uh, around social justice and equalities, and particularly for those less advantaged children and families, which Tony and I both come from, is to give them the opportunities that we feel we've had and to support children and their families holistically. So, uh, so that our work is very much infused with a social mission and a, and a political mission to make a difference to the kind of country we live in, to make it more inclusive and uh, allow every child to thrive and achieve their potential. And I say that at the beginning of this podcast because we're talking about something that is really important in securing children's life chances and their sense that they've lived life well and lived a fulfilled life. And our friendships and relationships are at the centre stage of all of that, as our own lives have illustrated to us. I think it's really, really important, as you say, that, you know, the research that we do has that impact. I was just thinking, I probably wouldn't be doing this right now if it wasn't for you know, I'm from a similar working class background and widening participation at the time when I was kind of going to university and so on allowed me to do what I'm doing. So I think it's really heartening to hear that that's still on the agenda and is still, you know, people are still advocating for that because it's so important. I, I'd have never have gone to university unless I'd received a, a, a grant. You know, I can say that quite straightforwardly. But, but I think our work in early childhood education is not just educational, it's what I call civic work. It's about citizenship and, and voice and democracy and listening to children and their families, whoever they are, and responding to that. And that's the kind of society I want to live in where it's respectful and inclusive and people have the chance to live their life in a full, we're going to use the term in a fulfilled way, not not just driving academic lives. For me, education, I trained back in the 70s, was much more holistic. It was about giving children the capacity to live a, a culturally and socially and, and professionally and rich life, to be able to develop relationships. I'm coming back to the theme of this podcast are really meaningful and help them live well. We're social beings and we all depend on having uh, you know, people around us who we care for and who care for us, which is what friendships are about, isn't it? One of the reasons I was so interested in talking to you is and knowing that you do quite a lot of work around children's well-being. So, and obviously that's so... Uh, linked in with children's friendships. So I just wondered if you could tell us about your research and links to young children's friendships and perhaps well-being. So could we start with you, Tony? Uh, yeah, I mean, we are interested in uh, in researching uh, friendships and well-being. Friendships are very important to well-being, not just for children, but for adults as well. The communities within school settings and early childhood settings 
I think that there's a danger at the moment that we've developed, and I think it's particularly impactful in, in early childhood settings. We've developed a, what I'd call a performative culture. So all of a sudden, we've started to measure children and have metrics on everything. And we're forcing both the practitioners and the children to be subject to that. And I'm not sure we've got the balance right. I do think we want all children to be fulfilled and to be the best they can be and to develop skills and so on. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it. I think that we've got in balance the relationship between fulfillment, if you like, the development of all the skills and things that children need, and flourishment. And I think flourishment is quite a nice idea because it suggests that children have to develop within the community and with themselves and be socially interactive and so on. So that focus on, I think, at a political level, that we've, we've got that in out of balance at the moment. But that's one of the things that we're, we're very interested in exploring. That's great. Thank you. And did you want to add anything to that, Chris? I want our children to progress academically and achieve that That's because that's what's helped me in my life. And, and I had a good education in Birmingham that enabled, gave me the, the knowledge and the skills and the capacity to do that. But I, I think particularly in early years, although I think it's true throughout, this how do you live well while you're doing that? And I really worry at the moment about mental health issues that amongst our children and young people because they've lived through COVID, been very isolated, cut apart from their normal networks and friendships. And a lot of our work really looked at that. And I think that has led us to a preoccupation, not just with the, the knowledge and skills that children need to progress educationally, but the process by which we uh, they experience that. And I think for children, flourishing is, is about, about having a life in which things like joy and love and trust and re relationships are part of that, are part of where children are developing the skills to be able to do that. And actually, to perform well in any area of your life, you need to be able to connect with other people. And I also want to make the point at the beginning here that friendships are part of that, but relationships are bigger than that. We have to relate to people who are not our friends. We have to relate to people that we sometimes find it difficult to be friendly with. We live increasingly in a polarised society of us and them and 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 othering others and not connecting in a respectful way with each others. But in our world, we've got to learn to live with difference. And I mean, at the global level, you know, there's war going on in Europe now and how we live with difference and diversity and people who are different to us and how we relate to that in a respectful way with that, without losing your own integrity and your own sense of groundiness and of who you are. and that, You've got your place in that world and you've got your close network of, and I'll call that friends, but you you operate in, in, in a connected way with other people in that world. We can't live like hermits or in gated communities or camps away from other people. So that's when I talk about our civic work and relationships are at the heart of that bit of the foundation stage curriculum, which puts personal, social, emotional at the heart of it, probably more than, and I'm, I'm a bit great fan of, of getting children mathematically and, and you know, linguistically competent, but the ability to be socially, emotionally literate as well is probably more important in terms of determining that child's life 
and the fulfillment in their life. My daily work is full of relating to other people. And if I had got got the skills to do that, I would be in big trouble. I don't think you can live well in an isolated way. So I work on relationships and within those relationships, we all need somebody around us or a few people around us who would go to unreasonable lengths for us, which is what your friends and hopefully your family do. But we all need people in our life to do that. And and that means that close relational friendship, developing that capacity to link up with somebody like that, to have a bond. And it starts really early on, those that basic skill of connectivity and attachment, we might call it. Attachment of another to us, because we learn it through that, but also our attachment to others around them and how we negotiate that through our lives. Because because our relations, our close attachments change as we grow too, don't they? I was struck by a young child I was with the other day who had got into trouble at school because she'd said that somebody wasn't her friend. And then I thought, well, look, that's a fairly okay thing to say because I have to work with people who are not my friends. So I thought she'd been quite sophisticated saying, no, she's okay, but she's not my friend. She was making that distinction. So, so I, I think friendships and relationships and our networking with people is how, and, and, and that's created by the processes by which we live and work together. And we, as Tony said, we don't spend enough time or there's a danger that we're spending not enough time on that. And some of that is part of why I think some children are struggling in today's world because they haven't had enough experience of it or that there's too much of a function to drive them on and drive them through and catch up and, uh, you know, which is very individuated rather than a collective endeavour. I've recently done a podcast with a teacher in a school and they were saying very, very similar things to you. You know, again, the fact that, you know, we want children to reach their potential and, and to do well in maths, English, that kind of thing. But we also really, the really important things are those relationships and making connections. And I know you mentioned there about COVID-19 and I know you've written social mobility impact research brief. And uh, I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that. We were commissioned by the social mobility unit, actually, to look at what was happening over over the period of the pandemic and before, uh, and also the Throwable Trust we've been working with because the rebellion practice has a great emphasis on some of the things we've talked about, fulfilment and friendships and networking, and, and the importance of being together with each other uh, during this time. And our work tends to be in practice and with practice. All of our research is done in the company of others. We don't come in as researchers and do research. We kind of work alongside children and, and we particularly uh, try to listen well to children and, in, and encourage them to kind of share their knowledge and expertise, which is what we were doing on this project. What were their experiences like of living with COVID? There's age hierarchies that go on here. And the group of, of people that haven't been listened to by policy and practitioners are children and young people. There's a lot of evidence now. But the younger children particularly, because there's this perception that they're not able to articulate. And, and actually, we find children profoundly able 
to articulate and communicate, even without words, their body, if you tune into what they're telling you, they're communicating with you. They're incredible communicators of their mental state, their well-being and what matters to them. So through the children's play, when they were going through COVID, and sometimes they'd there was lockdown and they were not allowed in and some kids were in and some were not not in. But we really were trying to uh, listen well to what children's experiences were. And we did some work in primary schools as well for the Teach First project to see what their experience had been during lockdown. And the, the fundamental thing that bonded them all was that during lockdown, the biggest thing they'd missed was their friendships in the nursery or in the school. When they were going backwards and forwards, lockdown, not lockdown, or in bubbles and not in groups, children found that profoundly difficult, that they, they couldn't relate to their home friendships because there's home friendships and school settings. How they lived with that? Some children we found very, very resilient in that. You know, in, in fact, the children were teaching us as adults how to manage that. And they found ways to express it through their play and through their actions to make different kinds of connections with people. I remember one little girl, she knew she couldn't hug her friends, so she kind of uh, developed this self-hug, and then she did a kiss by opening and shutting the palm of her hands to express her feelings. So that they, they were telling you can find ways to connect, even if you can't physically. And that they were, But they were absolutely, when they were back in the, in the nursery and the school, Sometimes the coming back was difficult to navigate because they'd move. It was a long period of time, and they're growing fast, and things are changing, and their friends had had experiences that they hadn't. The thing they most missed and most needed as a kind of therapy was to reconnect with their friends and, and being back into the routine of their nursery community. But what we were doing in our research was documenting and curating their play sequences to see what was happening in their play and how they were making their inner life this is very rebellion their inner life outer through the expression of that in their play sequences and lots of there was lots and lots of covid play there was a game called the death game where they acted out somebody dying but they didn't want to do that with an adult they did that away that was quite interesting but mask games touching games and not wash hand cleaning, all kinds of play that, that went on over a period, whereas others didn't want to do that at all. They wanted to play away from that, so superhero play. And the other thing we found is they were drawn to the outdoors. They, 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 again, children teach you. They, when they're in the nursery, they had the choice of indoors and outdoors, maybe because they hadn't been able to when they were at home. They wanted to be outdoors because, A, I think they kind of, knew it was almost in that romantic words worthy of the outdoors is is healthier for you the engagement with the outdoors was much more profound and as an individual but also as a group they wanted to be outdoors as well so we learned a lot through observing and listening and documenting their play and then talking with the children and then telling their stories often using their words or through multimedia expressions of what they did and then really dialoguing with them and the practitioners about what they were telling us and then we adjusted practice because of that so that's the impact 
So the children's voices really shifted. So the practice in the preschools changed. Nurseries changed. So they, they changed to be more outdoors focused. They changed to give children more time to play and less time doing kind of what might be prescribed of catch-up activities around literacy and numeracy. They felt the children needed more time to be with each other and to play in a free way and play out these narratives and express these narratives that were really important to them. And, and they also wanted knowledge, by the way. They wanted to know about the, the, uh, the, the virus and what it looked like and they, the drawings of this virus, which is a crown, isn't it? Uh, you know, so, so they wanted that intellectual, academic knowledge about, they didn't want it to be protected from that. They really wanted to know the science, I would say. And they understood what would happen if the virus got on their hands and got transmitted to them. They, so, so they, and then they were telling their parents about wearing the mask and dis, um, sanitation. So, you know, they, they, we sometimes, no, we quite often underestimate what children are interested in and capable of, but what they most needed and need now, if as we're moving ahead, is time to play, time to express their daily realities and live out and express their emotional state in relation to that, or not. Sometimes they want to move on from that and do something differently, and that should be fine as well. Two quick anecdotes from me, illustrative, I think, is that when we were doing this uh, think on, on COVID, we were interviewing uh, children and, and adults to see what had been the impact, but also what had been the, the process of recovery and re-entry into, into schools. And I remember interviewing this uh, 12-year-old girl and asking her what was the most difficult thing about having to come back to school, you know, and how she could pick up where she'd left off and so on. They'd had a strategy of, of an intervention process from a an additional teacher who'd been engaging this group. And I was thinking about the curriculum. And when I said to her, what's the most difficult thing? She said, I was frightened that when I came back, my friends wouldn't be friends with me. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's it. You know, if, if you're talking about developing children, you've got to be aware that all this happens in a social context. So that would be one anecdote. And the other one was, we've done another piece of research for the Scouting Association, and I'm not sure, I mean, historically, you know, when I was that age, you had scouts and cubs or, or guides and brownies. Now we've got, uh, underneath the, the cub level, we've got beavers, and we've got the new group, which is called squirrels, and so this is four- and five-year-olds. So, again, we're doing an evaluation, national evaluation. It's an incredible program, I think. Um, it, it is scouting, but it's about growing kids independently, it's not gender specific. It's boys and girls. So I'm asking this. I'm asking this group of children after the end. I says, "What? What was the most dangerous thing that you've done in scouting?" You know, and the, one of them said, "Oh yeah, we had to light a fire. You know, we, we were allowed to light a fire." And the other one said, "Another one said, yeah, we were chopping up wood.'" And I said, "Have you got any fingers left?" You know, and I says, and then this one kid said, um, "The hardest thing for me is actually coming in and seeing." my friends are still here and if they still like me I thought you know it's as deep as that I don't think PSC sums it up it's a sticking PSC on the end it's an actual integration and an, an integrated part of children's life and in fact all human life do I belong here is there somebody looking at me as an individual the teacher that I remember from my school it's still 
are the ones who saw me as an individual. And I think there's a, there's a problem with us just looking at children as what's the average and why aren't they up to the average? Because actually, none of us are average. We're all individual and independent. And I think that, that kind of flaw, the flaw, not the law of averages, but the flaw of averages is something we ought to take on board and see children more as individual and listen to this social and emotional process that has to be right and you have to be close to it and understand it. And that's how we wrap all friendships. And as I say, I think that applies not just to the children, but to the adults as well. Can I just pick up on a few points that you've said there? Those those kind of stories that you've, you know, those things you've just told us, Tony, about what friendship means to children. I think that's why I've been researching this for the last decade, because I know how much it means to children and know that it's really important to them. You know, it's really great that you could share those examples. Just picking up on a couple of things that you said, Chris, those positives almost, if we can say, I know we don't like to look at it in that way, but actually in times of adversity like COVID, you were saying that, you know, some of the children showed resilience through their play and, and again, play being so integral to friendship and you mentioned Frobel and I've done a podcast with them and interestingly, they mentioned your work. I think when I did some research with children during COVID, there were some children that talked about, actually, this did give me the opportunity to make new friends or to talk to people that I don't usually talk to. Or, you know, particularly when there were groups of children where there were um, key worker children and vulnerable children that were in school. So it might be that your friends weren't there. But actually, for some children, that was an opportunity to have conversations with other children or be in groups with other children that they wouldn't ordinarily be with. And for some, that was positive. We did a, a piece of work in a seaside town where we were looking at uh, early years settings and seeing what had been the impact um, on those early years settings in terms of COVID and so on. But this one particular setting, it was close to a hospital, and it was an area of, of great social deprivation. You know, some of our seaside towns now are, are where um, what used to be called troubled families were placed. And the children in this setting were those who had been children of key workers during COVID. And they weren't the children, and as I said, they're next to the hospital, but they weren't the children of the nurses and doctors. They were essentially the children of the porters, the ordinary people who were grafting around, around this. And for them, of course, because they were seen as children of key workers, the ratios had suddenly changed within the setting. Th their care and education was being paid for. And what the practitioners reported to us was that what they had predicted in terms of these children's achievements was far exceeded during COVID years. They're the ones that were the, the complete outliers who went against it. And they'd really benefited from lower ratios, more time. They hadn't stuck to the um, rigidity of the practice. And as Chris said, they've enjoyed a lot of time outside, outdoors, exploring things, because actually the staff wanted to be outside more than they did inside. So I just thought that was an interesting outlier. And, you know, maybe saying something about what's needed in terms of having the space and the forum to develop children in the way that we're suggesting. And, yeah, maybe in a rebellion way. To have that time and space 
to actually focus on those interactions and those relationships, yeah. I think it's important to say that COVID impacted on all of us differentially. Some of us and some children had a good, if you can say there's a good COVID, another a really bad one. And all those now are back together. And so the challenges that, that those of us who work in those provisions is to support all, all of those children. And, you know, the danger is that we focus on the catch-up thing, which is to intensify and narrow down on a few certain things when actually part of maybe what we should be doing is opening up and, and relaxing. And we're very inspired recently by Alison Clark's work on slow pedagogy and giving time for because staff are also struggling with their own mental well-being and recovery too. But giving not thinking we've got to catch up in 12 months what's what was a three-year process, and for some children, the majority so far of their their young lives, is we've got to give them the luxury and freedom of time to, to navigate a way through that. Now, that takes skill, and it isn't just about saying we just need to let them go and free-for-all and all of that. Skillful practitioners who know how to scaffold and structure individually for, for those differences that are there, but to pay attention to the the well-being and the you know to give children time and staff time to have relaxed time together slow time together to process things and find their feet and you know the, the skill of interacting with a, a wider group of children you know these children coming in from home and family and that's been very restrictive if you think of how many different relationships these very young children are having to, having to make and respond to when they've been in a very contained environment. You know, you add another two children in and it exponentially, the number of interactions, the number of relationships between all those children. And you add another 10 children and it, it's massive what we're expecting of these children in order to function. And it, it isn't just about sitting them down on the mat and showing them flashcards or getting vocabulary into them. It, it's how how they interact and relate to each other and we've got to pay attention to this I think kind of looking ahead if we don't there's a there's this whole generation and all of us who, who really are, we're all still in recovery from it certainly I, I, I certainly still am because my working life was transformed and children's lives were shaped differently this cohort coming through their lives were shaped differently We've got to kind of pay attention to that and infecting their day. I talked earlier about, you know, the, the conditions for flourishing and fulfillment is, is joy. You know, they, they've got to experience joy in their daily life, being able to be joyful and, and to feel the joy and to, to, to develop and to feel warmth and affection from people who aren't their family, to know how to, know when and how to trust other people. There's a lot of, of caution because they have to be. So having to engage in a trusting way and develop trusting relationships is a big work for us to do in, in our sector. Um, so joy and love and trust and, and, and giving them time to process those experiences through play or through arts. And, and there's another thing that's linked, the imagination and creativity. I, one of the things that other pieces of work were very involved with is is 
the the place of creativity that the arts and 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 cultural life that goes on in a setting that that those many of these children have missed out on giving nurseries and schools not just permission but the support to kind of enrich their lives that that aspect of their life has been impoverished as well and will have consequences for how they grow up with a, a love of the arts the ability to to enjoy music or make music the the ability to to create art or or be in art or perform art all of these things enrich life and make us more rounded people and we generally do these things in the company of others don't we you know you just think that we couldn't sing together and how joyful singing is at every age and we're having to kind of re relearn all those things or learn for the first time those things again and all of that needs space and time to have its place and and there's a big huge work for us to do but underneath that children are incredibly resilient and found ways through it but not all children did so we we've got to be got to be aware of of the the differential of experience some children flew and thrived and had brilliant times and had wonderful home experience as well as as carried on at the nursery and that was kind of better for some children who were there but other children did not and have had a very difficult time but uh, we always say the best therapy for any child is another child a Greek friend of ours once said that to me and I always remember it the best therapy for any child or any human is another human that they can get close to that's what friendship is about and you know it's it's fundamental to our, our work but our life more broadly I think and we're really campaigning in all of our political work and in our and our practitioner and practice work is to to encourage and support attention to be paid equal attention and a rebalancing I think Tony talked about of our attention to these underpinning life skills which is what they are which is how we live well in the 21st century and how we deal with virtual friends or the virtual world there's a there's an ai kind of issue as what you know when we think of the sustainability goals they're human and social and environmental and but technology is also changing the nature of friendships and relationships and helping children and ourselves navigate what the way through that it's a, it's a massive challenge it brings huge opportunities for connectivity, but it brings huge challenges about what's real and authentic and, you know, that, that will help you live a fulfilled, well, life when all those options are around. And, uh, you know, I think we should in this podcast touch touch the, the AI and the virtual world or the metaverse and, you know, do you like me? Am I your friend? What image am I presenting on that? On, on my Facebook, you know, very young children, very, very young children have phones and live in this virtual world. It's, you know, it's astonishing to me. And and how we give them alternatives to that or ground them in a real world is something that I care quite passionately about. But I, I want the, the, the meta world or whatever that is to be a benefit to our humanity, not to kind of 
distance ourselves from each other or allow ourselves to live in even more of a bubble Uh, because I think one of the things that's happening is we're all living in little self-contained bubbles and social media and the internet are are part of that aren't they and uh, that polarizes or puts us into that camp or that camp and I've come back to that learning to live and relate to people who are different to us in many ways and I, I, I don't just mean in terms of their abilities and I mean in terms of their sexuality all the diversities populations are on the move and our countries are becoming much more diverse places so we're not living in a tight homogenous community and shouldn't be and how we encourage that openness to difference and that welcome to difference and and an ability to connect across those differences in an inclusive way is going to be vitally important for our survival as a as a species I think. When you were talking lots of things were coming into my mind but I was thinking still about that sort of tolerance, that understanding, that compassion and that time and space and I was just thinking about a scenario that somebody was telling me about just after we'd had the second lockdown I think one of my friends said they saw um, a lady with a pushchair with a toddler in the pushchair and she just went up and said you know just to talk to them in the street and said hello and said hello to the child in the pushchair and the child kind of turned away and um, she just said look I'm really sorry but he's a Covid baby and he's really finding it hard now with those interactions and when you said about trusting people it made me think about that whole you know we've got to allow that time and space and understanding and compassion about you know children have kind of learned you know during those lockdowns to be cautious and to be careful and now it's going to take a while for that you know um so that reminded me of that thank you for listening to this podcast the second episode of this podcast with tony and chris can be accessed by visiting https colon forward slash forward slash research dot shu dot ac dot uk forward slash friends. Here you will also find more information on Karen's research and other related podcasts. This podcast was made possible by a fellowship opportunity funded by Sheffield Hallam University. (laughs) 